Hannah Crowther. I'm James Rooker. And welcome to episode three of Legitimately Interesting, the podcast from the Bristow's data protection team. Um, so today we're going to be talking about biometrics. Um, is Biometrics is an issue that is increasingly crossing our desks as the technology becomes more mainstream and so just more accessible. And so lots of our clients have been uh, increasingly looking to deploy biometrics in their business. And what with the ICO just having released draft guidance and there having been a bit of enforcement uh, activity both in Europe and in the US, we thought this would be a very worthwhile topic for our podcast. So Jamie, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so maybe the place to start. What are we even talking about? What's biometric data? Um, Biometric data has a specific meaning under the GDPR. And rather than read out the definition, I think what might be more useful is just to break it down into its three constituent parts. So part one, the data must relate to physical, physiological or behavioral characteristics of a person. So that might be their face, some you know, iris scanning, voice recognition, the, their gait, whatever it may be. Um, the second element is that the data has to result from specific, specific technical processing. So if you think about uh, an image... That's not enough. An image of a face is not enough. It has to be subject to something that turns into a, some kind of biometric scan of the face. And then the final element is that the data has to allow or confirm the unique identification of that person. So those are the three building blocks of what biometric data is. Well, and if you just talk a little bit more, when you say confirm or allow, so that, I suppose, is what distinguishes it, isn't it, from just... Uh, a photo or what well that would confirm it can you talk us through that a little bit more yeah so um you are you are looking at a a facial scan it's been subject to some technical processing so all the elements of the face have been mapped out and then that allows you to say whether the facial scan you're looking at is the person you're trying to match it to right yeah so it's a kind of identification process so clearly at the point that uh the eu was drafting the gdpr back in 2011 2012 biometric processing was was a live issue. They made special provision for it in the legislation. But I think since the GDPR has been adopted and, and more recently, it's really taken off and has become part of our everyday lives. And there's, a, there's a, a range of kind of really interesting use cases where we see biometric data come across our desks, whether that's kind of the day-to-day stuff like your face ID on your phone allowing you to unlock to things like fraud checks to opt for online payments or fast track ticketing for events to some really, really interesting use cases like using biometric data to assess audience reaction to content or track sentiment of an audience, or even in a, you know, in an augmented or, or, or virtual reality environment, tracking of how you interact with the environment using biometric data to, to make that those environments work tiredness assessment is what I keep hearing quite a lot in the context of sort of where you've got drivers who perhaps work for you and you can actually use biometrics to work out how tired you think they are and therefore whether perhaps they should take a break or you should suggest that they take a break and you can imagine insurance companies being all over that in terms of you know wanting that data that's really interesting and I guess just stepping away from the from the private sphere there's obviously an ongoing and very active debate around biometric processing by public authorities, law enforcement, border control, you know, that, that's a whole other piece, but that is a very active debate as well. So range of biometric data issues, what does the GDPR have to say about it? Well, I think this is where it's quite interesting and often, often actually quite misunderstood, is that the GDPR 
essentially operates as sort of a two-tier system for biometric processing. So first of all, you have any use of biometric data. So any biometric data that falls into the, the category, the, the three ticks off the three conditions that Jamie spoke about. Um, and that is subject to the sort of normal GDPR rules. Um, it's likely to be considered quite sensitive and so high risk, and you're likely to need a DPIA. But then the GDPR is very prescriptive about the situations if you use biometric data for the purposes of uniquely identifying someone. So the purpose is really crucial. And at that point, if you're using it for the purpose of uniquely identifying someone, biometric data becomes special category data and so subject to Article 9. And so just to draw that out, you have biometric data must allow you to confirm the unique identity of someone. And if you are using it for the purpose of that, then it becomes special category data. So it's a really interesting kind of a two-step question. Like, first of all, is it biometric data? And secondly, what are you using it for? And that is what enables you to understand um, your legal obligations. Um, so just to kind of put that into practice, you could use biometric data and it could allow you to confirm someone's unique identity to, I don't know, add cat ears to their, to a picture of them, you know, to kind of do that augmented reality thing, um, to see if there is a face in a particular picture, maybe make an estimation as to whether someone is a child. And it might be that the template, the biometric template you've created in order to, you know, apply the cat ears it would actually allow you to confirm whether that is a particular person, but you're not using it for that purpose. So it's not Article 9 data in that situation. If you contrast it to a situation, and shout out to the ICO guidance here, because I do like the way they describe it. If you're using it to either identify or verify someone's identity, then you're in Article um, 9 territory. It's special category data. And you have those two. This is where I like the ICO's guidance. They talk about identification. So, you know, one to many. Is it X based on lots of people or verification one to one? Is this who I think it is? And they're the two. If you're doing either of those things, identification or verification, you're in Article 9. And I think it gives rise to the, the issue that a lot of in-house lawyers face, which is kind of mission creep when it comes to yes. you know, a piece of technology. Oh, it's really useful. And we use it for this. Hey, did you know it also did this? without realising that that might tip it over into an entirely different category of data protection obligation. Absolutely, yes. So, okay, you've just, if you are using it for identity, identification or verification, you're in Article 9, it's special category data, what does that mean? So what is going to be your lawful basis under Article 9? Now, in all honesty, explicit consent is probably the most heavily relied upon for biometric processing. That does, of course, throw up some of the issues around consent, which I will come into come on to. But often because of the, the difficulties with consent, it is worth considering whether you might have any other lawful basis you can rely on. Now, in the UK, we've got the whole of... Um, Keep me on a schedule one, not shed, schedule one of the Data Protection Act. Schedule two is the exemptions. I always get those two confused. But anyway, they, you've got all of them in the in the back of the Data Protection Act that give you some flexibility here. Um, so you have maybe employment law. Some of your your abilities under employment law might be worth looking at. Maybe you're doing research, something like that. There might be some some flexibility in terms of prevention or detection of crime. Um, not all of the member states have that same regime and so this is definitely an area where if you're looking pan-european you're probably going to need local council advice to really understand how that is implemented in practice 
and I think probably a lot, a lot of um, organizations that do this won't want to have a patchwork of different approaches. Yes. So if they can't rely on prevention of a crime in Ireland or France, the fact that they can rely on it, on it in the UK may be of limited help. I think it really depends on whether you're doing something that if you're looking at, say, employees, you could, of course, do it on one site and not another. But certainly for a consumer offering, absolutely, could could be much more difficult. Um, so and then it's also worth flagging that because the GDPR gives member states the ability to set specific rules on biometrics, it can actually be a particularly sort of, well, to use your phrase, patchwork in this, I think, more, more than some areas. So always worth considering whether there are alternatives to consent because it does make life a bit easier. If you are an into the world of consent, then of course you have to manage all the things that we all know about with consent, freely given, informed, specific. And for example, the ICO guidance on biometrics makes it very clear that in their view, for consent to be freely given, you have to give people an alternative. And I think that can throw up some real challenges where, for example, you've decided that biometrics is a good way of ensuring security. Um, and also just from a sheer expense point of view, the idea of operating two systems in parallel. So you've decided you want to do biometrics as an access control for people. You know, the idea, it's, it's a good idea. Great if you could use a pass as an alternative. But does that undermine the security? And does that sort of just create a, a bit of a nightmare from a pure sort of hardware or, or infrastructure perspective where you have these, these two systems operating parallel? Might be something you need to do anyway, but, you know, definitely not entirely straightforward. Yeah, and I think it gives rise to an interesting question. We're always told when it comes to consent or explicit consent, you can't force consent as a condition of the service unless it is necessary for the service. So then you get yeah. to this question of what about if that security or fraud prevention biometric check is absolutely intrinsic to the ability to offer the whatever it is payment product online payment product well you might say well we need explicit consent because there's no other alternatives in multiple jurisdictions it's special category data so we need the explicit consent but actually we can't offer an alternative and we kind of need people to consent to this otherwise they can't use the product yeah. so there's a really interesting area because regulators really don't like that I think that is a really good point, though, and you do, I think there probably is more scope, because whenever you're looking at explicit consent under Article 9, it is sort of, potentially, there is always that debate between then your Article 6 condition and whether that could be consent or that could be performance of a contract. So the other kind of interesting issue that th that consent throws up is the what's sometimes called no match processing or the bystander issue and this has evolved from some guidance and some case law about the idea that you are also doing biometric processing when you process data in order to confirm a non-match and this does sort of make sense because in order to check if that is the right person's face you have to on the fly create a biometric template of them now the, the problem with this, of course, is that that is usually a someone who is trying to bypass your security. That's that's often the sort of fundamental purpose of it. Or in a kind of one to many situation where you're trying to ID specific people in a crowd, say, of course, you can never get consent of those people. And you certainly couldn't get consent of someone who was trying to like undermine your security. So it does present this really difficult issue of like, we're all used to say, we consent to having, you know, a, a photo on our phone to unlock it. But if someone picks up my phone and tries to unlock it, you obviously you can't get their consent to test that. So it's sort of, it's a, a bit of a 
well, nightmare, what should we say? It, it doesn't really work, if you sort of mean, and I don't think it's been properly addressed by the law. And I think, in all honesty, it's just a bit of a fudge. So maybe I'm only mentioning it as a point of kind of academic interest, but it certainly is a live, a, a risk to, that one has to always be aware of. So it highlights the inflexibility of Article 9 in a lot of ways. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay, we spent quite a lot of time talking about Article 9, but of course there are lots of other data protection considerations to think about, um, both when you're in that special category data uh, bucket and when you're not. So, Jamie, can you help us? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's right that we spend time thinking about Article 9, because I think that is kind of where a lot of the action is when it comes to biometrics. But just to pick out a couple of other issues, and one in particular that an issue we encounter a lot is the extent of the involvement of a third party specialist or provider when it comes to the use of biometric technologies. Typically, you know, as biometric processing involves specific a specific technical process, there is often a specialist involved. And there's a range of questions that gives rise to in terms of what do they want to use the facial scans for? Are they merely providing you know, facial scans or whatever the, the biometric uh, processing is? Are, are, are they merely doing it to provide a service to you? Are they perhaps wanting to use the, the information and the data to train their own model and to train their own algorithm? And in, in sort of instinctively as a controller, you say, no, I don't want that. I want them to be a processor only and I want to place some serious limitations around what they can do. Well, maybe if it's, say, a security check or a fraud check, piece of technology, maybe they need it. And the only way the technology is going to get better is to actually feed, you know, feed it with data. And so there's a, there's a trade-off and a, and a balance to be struck by an organization that wants to use the biometric technology in the first place. Uh, how much do they allow the, the provider to do? I think there's also a question of, uh, is it possible to even suggest they are a processor when you have someone offering really sophisticated technology? They might, if you're looking at lawful basis, they might be the one that's interacting directly with the end user. They might need to get consent themselves or they might feel more comfortable doing that. I think very often we do see biometric providers actually unusually in this in a service industry getting quite comfortable with the idea they might be controllers. Yeah, I think I think that's right. But then I guess from the consumer or end user perspective, what you're then presented with is, I don't know, you're again using payments as an example, you go on to the payments platform, you're, you're interacting with the, the entity that is providing the service to you. Maybe you see their privacy policy, maybe you get asked to consent, then you get passed through to the biometric provider. Maybe you see another privacy policy, maybe that privacy policy links to three more and you run into this issue around transparency and consent that again, gets a lot of regulatory interest, but it's quite hard to see a different way through if you've got two controllers. Um, obviously, a number of these specialist providers are in the US. Data transfer provisions, data transfer requirements come in. Maybe some of your data transfer impact assessments are harder to do when you're talking about sensitive data or biometric data. So that can be a really interesting area. Um, there's obviously you know, a range of other data protection considerations. Uh, Automated decision-making is one. So almost by definition, organizations are using biometric data because it allows them to do something on an automated basis that they can't use humans for. That's, that's kind of the purpose. Um, and so that brings in Article 22 of the GDPR, so prevents you from, um, from undertaking automated decision-making, having a legal or similarly significant effect on individuals, um, uh, unless it's necessary for a contract or, or explicit consent or, or if authorised by law. So 
there's a there's a kind of a prohibition there, but then there's also uh, even if it's allowed, you're, you're expected to bring in an element of human review, which can be quite tricky uh, and may well reduce the effectiveness of the tool that you're trying to deploy. I think this brings in, as as always with Article 22, lots of interesting questions about that threshold of what's a similarly significant effect. So denying someone access to their place of work, maybe not allowing them to purchase a product. Product you have, you know, people are using um, biometrics to do age verification. You know, I do I do think that's always a really interesting point where, yes, you're perhaps if you're denying someone the right to enter into a contract, would that it's a legal effect? Does that bring you in within? article 22 so there's there's definitely a lot to think about that 100 yeah absolutely and um and the the the, the law the, the legal authorization point there when it comes to article 22 is kind of interesting as well because you can imagine a scenario where um you've got an organization under broad obligations to say prevent fraud that might be a legal obligation placed on them but it doesn't say they have to use biometric data for that to what extent can you say, well, actually, it is, you know, it, it, it's something that's authorised by law because we're required to do it. That's an interesting consideration as well. And then uh, accuracy is another interesting point. Typically, biometric recognition systems use uh, probabilistic ma- uh, matching to determine whether two values are essentially similar to one another. Um, depending on the sophistication of the technology, there might be uh, different levels of statistical accuracy. So what the ICO guidance talks about is um, if there's a, an element of inaccuracy inherent in the product, you've just got to do more f- from a mitigation perspective to reduce that risk. And that might just be me. That might just mean if you're using a product that is uh, giving rise to a, a less accurate match, you have to be a bit more careful about where you deploy that. So you're using it to give you an indication of something rather than to confirm something, perhaps. And I think, but where you've got low accuracy, well, it's always worth being aware of where that low accuracy falls, right? There's been quite a lot of discussion and press interest in the idea of just how different some biometric technologies are for different minority groups and different ethnic groups, right? And how you can have a real, you can have a tool that claims to be really, really accurate, but it's actually only really accurate on, you know, the sub, on a small subset of, you know, kind of, yeah, like potentially the majority, or it might just be white people or, you know, men or something like that. So that's definitely something to dig into, I think, particularly if you're looking at, say, a a provider and, you you know, ask questions about the stats you're being given, I think. Sure. And I I think there's a, there's a kind of interesting definitional point as well, which is, if you're using a tool that is not terribly accurate, but just giving you an indication of something, does it even allow you, does it even allow or confirm identity? So does it even meet the threshold of biometric? There's, there's a line somewhere. It's not always clear where that line is, but that's that's something uh, interesting to think about. And so just to, just to wrap this up, I mean, I think there's a range of different data protection considerations that need to be walked through. What do we do when there's a range of data protection considerations? We do a DPIA. And, and the regulators, you know, the ICO guidance in particular, essentially says you, you're really going to need to do a DPIA here for a range of reasons. You know, large, large scale processing of special category data being one, but there are, it ticks other boxes on the DPIA list. Technology, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And frankly, DPIA is a good repository for the thinking you're going to need to go through to work out whether this is appropriate or not. Absolutely. Well, on that happy note, love to end one of these podcasts with a DPIA. <laughs> um, so thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.